Hey everyone, and welcome to the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers, a show, according to Matt Riddle, that is at least 5% better than AM radio. My name is Matt, and joining me on the cast today are my wonderful co-hosts as usual. First up, Miss Tiffany B. Hello. And Dan. Ladies. Welcome everybody. In case you've forgotten where to find us or contact us on the internet, you can do so at facebook.com slash the League of Nonsensical Gamers. Feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Head on over to BGG Guild number 2077 and join in the conversation, or find us on wonderful places like Twitter and Instagram. And also, before we start the show, thank you to our wonderful sponsor, TMG Tasty Minstrel Games. Check them out at playtmg.com and look on your store shelves for all of their latest releases. All right, our show this time, we've got some fun stuff to do. First up, we're going to talk about, are there too many games on those game shelves that I just mentioned? I have a little discussion about that. I've got some trivia that is pretty interesting using a geek list about the 2017 most purchased games. But before we get into any of that, let's talk about what we have been playing. And Tiffany B, two games on the list. You're killing it in 2017. Uh, Well, I'm at least doing a little bit better. I, I find that it helps if you have people over to play games. That's the first step. Like bring them to you? (laughs) Well, you have to to meet with gamers in order to play games, turns out. This is true. Yes, (laughs) that sounds accurate. So yeah, I'm getting back into my game night routine every Thursday. So the last two weeks, played a game twice, the Bloodborne card game. Have we talked about this on the show at all? Has anybody played it? I don't think so. Dan, have you played this? Nope. I don't know what Bloodborne is. I'm assuming it's a video game of some type. It is, yes. Okay. It's a, it's a very difficult video game set in like a horror medieval setting kind of thing. Monsters. So is the game. So is the board okay. game. Okay, good. Consistency. <laughs> um, so it's like kind of a dungeon crawly feel to it. It uh, There's like a big boss that you have, and then you have to fight through a bunch of monsters uh, to get to that big boss. And it's cooperative, but not. <laughs> so you're all you're all def- trying to contribute to defeat the monster, but at the end, you want to have the most points. So there is a winner. Mm. Okay. So so the way it works is you have a hand of cards that are weapons that do a certain amount of damage, and you know the timing on each of them can be different based on the effects on the weapon, and some of them damage the other players and things like that. And you pull out a monster. He has a certain amount of health. Uh, sometimes weird thing, a special ability type things. Um, you simultaneously reveal what you're playing, and then in player order, you do the damage and you collect, oh, I forget what they're called. Someone who plays Bloodborne is going to be very upset. Blood tokens of some sort. And uh, the way it times out is if, if there aren't enough blood tokens and you've done damage, like you don't get them by the time it rolls around to you. Hmm. So the okay. way your the timing works, like some of them, if no one else has played a melee weapon, you get to go first, even if you're not first in a turn order. So the timing part of it matters. And uh, so you do damage, and if you kill it, there are like 
these little tracks on your player board that you get extra bonus points from and you get to move up on those tracks. Um, what else is there to this? Oh, and then you just have a hand of cards. You add to it. You either add to it if you die. If you die, you like resurrect and come back to life, but you add more cards to it, your hand. You can have up to seven. And uh, there's also, once you, you're playing out your cards, you don't get them back. The, the way you get them back is you have to dream something like this. There's a oh. card. And um, <laughs> Hunter's Dream or something. I'm driving someone crazy. Sorry. Sorry, guy. Um, but yeah, you, you play this dream card and it halves the damage that you would take in that round from the monster because the monster obviously does damage to you. There's a dice. You, yeah. So um, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you get your health back, you get your cards back, and you get to take a new weapon if you play that card. But there are definitely turns where I played that card and still died because of the monster damage. So, I don't know. The first time I played it, I was like, ugh, this is okay. I was not yeah. feeling it the first night, and it's especially hard to play one of these games that is based on a world that you are completely unaware of. I was going to uh, say, it sounds like after your two plays, you really have a strong grasp of the theme. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at it as just like a straight-up dungeon crawl, and in that way, it, it makes sense, you know? Like, I don't know, but the, the the theme doesn't matter. It's a dungeon crawl, and uh, it's okay. It's not bad. I'll, I'll give it that. Me winning our second game definitely turned me around a oh, little yeah, bit on yeah, it. Yeah. The first time, because the other thing is, as you're collecting these blood tokens, you have to bank them. Like okay. you you collect them, but you don't get to keep them. Like you can lose them from other play to other players or to the monster or whatever, and if you don't bank them, so you have to time out when you're gonna dream and bank all your blood tokens. And I got, I was really bad at it the first play, the first time we played. So um, now that I get the hang of it, it's not so bad. If you like Bloodborne, you'd probably like this game because it's not a bad game and it's based on Bloodborne, whatever that is. Well, so that's what I was thinking is that even you having a complete disconnect from the theme, you've been able to come and like it. So I guess the mechanisms in the game are interesting enough. They're interesting enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the worst thing ever. Now, this isn't your game, right? No, <laughs> no. This is uh, my buddy, Justin. He bought it, which he must. He's into video games. So he must have played the video game, saw it and thought, hey, yeah. let's do this. Is everyone else into it? Is this something you're going to have to play in the future? It's going to keep was, popping up? I think it will. Uh, my husband really likes it. And uh -oh. when we find a game that he likes, it will get played again. So, yeah, I think it's it's going fine. I didn't like it the first time and everybody's like, oh, you just don't, you know, you're yeah. being grumpy. And I was. Well, good <laughs> self-awareness, Tiff. Good self-awareness. But, yeah, it's it's an, it's an okay game. Check All it right. out if you if you know Bloodborne especially because yeah. I don't. That's Obviously. wildly outside of your box. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Turns Good out if too. someone else will teach the rules, I'll play anything. Ah, that's excellent to know. I've got so many abstract games on my list. Well, to, see well, at Origins. Like, we'll see, we'll see. All right, silent and quiet Dan, let's get you into this episode. Perk up a little bit. What have you been playing? Um, I didn't put anything on my list, so you go ahead and talk, and I'll just bounce off of your games because I played the same ones. Okay, that works. I guess then looking at the ones that... We played together. Let's start with Glass Road, because Glass Road was one that I think you had on your list last episode and we never really got around to. Uh, Glass Road is a Uwe Rosenberg game from, I don't know, a couple years ago. It's like new, but not that new. Is that right? 
It's like 2013. Okay. And it is... I guess it's a it's a resource management game for sure, but it's got like a tile laying element ish, but not like Carcassonne tile laying. It's more like you're buying tiles to add to a player board that you have. Uh, but the heart of the game is is this double rondelle resource management where you're trying to make glass and bricks and balance the components of uh, those two items. And the way that it works is you have a hand of cards. Everyone has the same hand of cards. These are different professions or people within the the town that you're working in, and you're going to play them, and they will give you benefits. They'll allow you to clear out spaces on your board or gain more resources or buy buildings or things like that. Uh, But there's an interactive element within the players where everyone chooses their hand of cards, five cards, uh, at the same time, and then you go one by one, simultaneously playing cards out and flipping them in turn order. If I flip a card that you have in your hand that you've selected you then play that card out and get a benefit. It also halves my benefit. So if I'm the only one to play a certain card, I get kind of double, a double dose of the power or some kind of special benefit. If I played a card that other people are trying to play, then I get halved and they also get to do a little something. So there's a balance between trying to be the only person to do something, but also bringing a couple spare cards in your hand that hopefully other people are going to play because you will then get extra actions kind of thing. You're only going to get to play three of your five cards, but you have two extra slots to kind of piggyback off of other people. So there's that anticipation trying to uh, pay attention to your opponents. So even though you don't directly interact with them on their board, there's a, a heavy amount of interaction in terms of trying to anticipate your opponent's moves so that you can benefit from them. Other than that, the other interesting piece is the way that the rondelles work. So as you gain resources, uh, imagine like a clock face circular track, they're going to advance clockwise around the board. And if ever like this clock hand, which is sticking out on your rondelle, um, is next to an open spot, it's going to tick forward. So as you gain resources, if you have kind of one of every resource, you're going to move. And as your rondelle moves, you're producing glass and bricks. It's kind of hard to explain through audio, but Uh, It's pretty clever in that you're trying to balance these resources and whenever you have the right amount of resources, you're automatically going to spend them. So sometimes you don't want to gain certain things because it's going to waste certain resources on glass or brick when you may or may not want them. Uh, Then you can take these resources and buy buildings and add them to a little board space. So the long and the short is I liked the game mechanically, but I found that it was kind of short and overall I felt like the gameplay was kind of mediocre. I think when you you put it all together, it didn't really come to a satisfying conclusion for me, at least. We only played the base game. We didn't get to play with any of the advanced buildings, but it's just, it's cool to play with the mechanisms, but I didn't find that the end product was actually that satisfying. I didn't feel like I did a whole lot. And I don't know how you feel about that, Dan. Mostly the same, I guess. Um, and I, I think I texted this to Tiff after the first time I played it. Every, and I've played it, I think, three times now. And every time just feels like it's two or three turns too short and it just kind of abruptly ends and I'm like, oh, all right, let's just count some points now. Um, Like I can understand like there are some like comboing effects in the buildings and there's, you know, things you can actually strive towards from a strategic standpoint. But I always feel like, and maybe it's just because I'm bad at the game. I don't know. Maybe I'm just horrible at it. I just feel like I can never get those things to fully operate. 
uh, quickly enough. Um, I, I do love the card play aspect of it. It's got kind of a like a what is it? Uh, what's the witch game? Which uh, is broom or, service. Broom service. Yeah, it's kind of got like a broom service feel to it. That whole like, how do I want to play this? Do I want to try and be the only one, or does someone else have this in their hand? I really like that kind of double think aspect. And in this one, it was kind of cool because it it, it lends to your engine. Um, and there's not like moving around the board to confusingly marked spaces, <laughs> in, like in broom service. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There are people that play this with an extra round of building, like a fit. Like I think there's four in the game. Yeah. And there are people that play it with five and say it's better that way. Just as a house rule. Um, it may be in the I official variant. Maybe. It might be in a va- a variant in the rule book. Maybe I'll have to look. I, I feel like that would any, help. I need five or six rounds in this game. Like four is just, I, yeah, it's not as satisfying. I've played it a couple of times, and I think that's the the overwhelming complaint about it is that it just feels too short and you can't do enough in the time that you have, but not in a good way. Yeah, it's not that tense decision making. It's more just, oh, it's done. I did a couple things. You know, some of those games where you really build up your engine, you hit that point. And it's about to end and you're like, okay, this was crazy because I had all these things I wanted to do and you know, I had to had to min-max and prioritize. This game doesn't really feel like that. It's just there's only a couple of things to do. It doesn't stretch you too far like normal Uva Rosenberg games. Uh, so it just is like, okay, I I did some things. Done. Yeah. That's that's, that's okay. It just felt it almost felt like an Uva filler game. It's like <laughs> little little baby Euro. It works. That's probably why I like quick it. And, yeah. It's 60 minutes or less, and probably even quicker than that once you really kind of understand the game. Um, like I said, the the mechanisms, like the wheel, that's really neat uh, when you kind of like actually grasp, oh, I'm losing resources to gain this resource. That's kind of neat um, how it just kind of automatically does it for you. Yeah. Um, and there's actually some, you can really kind of screw yourself up if you don't plan for that wheel turning at some points, which um, I kicked myself a number of times for that. But I kind of laughed about it because I was like, you know what? that That's right there in front of me. So I like that. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I don't know. It's probably like a six and a half for me. I don't know. It's not that great. It's not bad. It works perfectly fine. It has some nice mechanisms in it. But it, I don't know. The overall experience for me was just kind of, it's kind of bland. And you said that this somehow, that uh, Rondell wheel mechanism ties into Aura at Labora? Which yeah, is another Uber Rosenberg I, game. I mean, I know that game has those resource wheels. I don't know how it ties okay. in officially. I haven't played it yet. I don't know. Maybe this is another one of those. He designed two games with the same mechanic and kind of like he did with like Patchwork, Cottage Garden, Feast of Frode. And, and then one is just one just turned out to be a little bit lighter because he wanted to try something different with like card play versus yeah. or Labora being like the heavier one. Yeah, I'd be interested to check that out because I like that mechanism, but didn't feel like I got a whole lot out of it. So that would be cool. Yeah, I have it. I, I just haven't played it yet. Cool. All right. Well, that was a, a Dan Matt combo. High nice. five, like the Wonder Twins. Uh, we'll kick it back to Tiff. Tiff, you got to play a really cool card game that I'm rather fond of, Black Spy. Black Spy. Yeah, I haven't been fond of this, and I've played no. it a few different times. And I don't know, like... I guess I'm just bad at trick-taking games. I'm like that one Ohioan that doesn't play Euchre and, you know, don't I don't get into tr- trick-taking. I, <laughs> I get a lot of crap for it. But, um, and maybe I've just gotten better at it, but this time when we played it, 
the way it was taught or my growth as a trick-taking player has changed where I was like, oh, I kind of get this. And I actually won a game of Black Spy. That's why this is notable. It's like the one trick-taking game. <laughs> I can so if I'm that. noticing a trend in the games that you've selected to talk about, you keep winning them. Well, no, I'm just winning. I mean, any game that I picked this week was going to be a TIFF win. So it's not like I just picked the ones I win. I got you. <laughs> I've, I've been on a hot streak. We'll say that. But if you don't know Black Spy, it's essentially hearts. It has five suits and you're trying to avoid taking Black Spies, taking tricks with Black Spies because they give you they give you points and you don't want points. And for some reason, I, the first time I learned this, it was after a very long, like, canceled flight all day at the airport situation. Mm -hmm. And then, like, it was straight to dinner and we learned it before dinner came and I was not feeling trick-taking at that point. And then the second time, I don't even remember, but I just never quite... I don't know. It was never explained to me in a way that I totally, fully understand. <laughs> and this so, did time, this involve a reteach? It did because let's see. I'm trying to think. I think we had all played it before, but it just been a very long time, and it was my buddy Justin's game again. But uh, he he felt the same way. Like I don't know what to do. I don't know what to lead off with. I don't know what I want to keep in my hand because when you start off, you pass three cards to another player so like what do I want to keep do I want to keep high cards like there was just like it was hard to figure it out not having ever played a game like we haven't played trick taking games in a long time when we played it together the first time so we all simultaneously hated it because we just didn't understand (laughs) what to do so Kyle saved the day on this one he explained it very succinctly very short explanation but it just clicked in my brain and I, did, I wasn't great at it to start, but I got better and better every round, and that doesn't always happen. The only yeah. thing I can complain about in Black Spy is that there are some times where you just get screwed. You just, like, end up taking every trick for a while, and that is not a good feeling. And it happened yeah. to each of us. So I guess it, it spreads the love, but It's that sucks. definitely a hazard of trick-taking, and I this is, like, giving me fond memories of all of our <laughs> trick-taking discussions way back Many episodes ago, Tiff, but that's definitely a hazard in that you get dealt a hand and you've got little control over how that hand pans out. There is definitely some strategic play and tactical play uh, in terms of how you execute your hand, but sometimes it's just a bad hand. And fortunately, that hopefully gets spread out across multiple hands. And that's why you play to a score limit so that you're not getting shafted every time. So, yeah. yeah. So there you go. I'm starting to like trick taking games, everybody. (sighs) Now you got to get Chimera, which is a ladder climbing game, but still in the same family. You backed Kyle Ladder 29. What did you say? I did, I did back Ladder 29. Um, mm. Kyle has Chimera, but the yeah. problem with that one is that it's three players only. Yeah, it is. Like, when, when good, does that though. ever It doesn't happen very often, three players only. That, I hit that fairly Two, regularly. Well, weirdo. Two and three. I, yeah, I know. Sorry. It's, it's my fault that that happens. Totally. So, no, that's cool, though. And that is one of uh, the Z-Man small box card games, which is just so one of the best lovely. lines. Yeah. It's so Beautiful good. And so cool. good. All right. Well, Dan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a question here for you that was not in the show notes. You, I know you got to play Anachrony again. So I hit, was listening to a podcast and was concerned over the rules description in that podcast because it sounded like 
the way they played it and the way Dan and I played it was completely different, uh, particularly in like the time travel stuff. So I texted Dan and asked him and um, we didn't have an answer at the moment. We thought we read through that rule book pretty well. But Dan, you played it again. How did that go? Did we get the rules right? And then how is the repeat play? I, I don't remember what rule you're referring to. So I can't really talk to it unless you tell me. I don't. Did, well, I so mean, I played the game the same way I played it before, and that's correct. I'm assuming there was com- some concern over when you travel back in time. Remember, we were talking about whether or not you automatically jump forward in time when that round ends, because the uh, the description I heard was that you get like stuck backwards in time, and now you're behind everyone for the rest of the game. It's very no, which sounded I mean, both wrong. times I've played it. You, uh, I believe you're supposed to hop back to the current focus which is yeah. the the current period in time because the time travel only goes backwards yeah. where the decision comes in is because most of the time travel machines i think they only go back a max three so once you hit the later rounds like five six seven you can't go back to the beginning so you have to you have to be doing it early enough that you can actually get back in time unless you have multiple power plants and then you can go like three and then two. So yeah. um, I'm pretty sure I thought we checked that thoroughly in the rule book. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely off. No, base. I, I think we're pretty on the ball. I, I just didn't know if since you played it again. Stuck back in time. Yeah. Because then I didn't you know. Can't, if... How do you at? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. That's why I didn't know if playing it again, if maybe that had cleared things up a little bit if if things made more sense how was the experience three player and playing it for a second time it was fine um i won again which i'm pretty good at this game apparently so yeah it it was it was the same played with the the variable player boards which switches some things up gives you kind of a little bit of direction which is good and bad um because you start to get into oh, that one's way better than my player. So how does that balance itself out? And you got to kind of play through that and see it. I think there was one board, and I forget which one it was, that seemed to be severely lacking as far as um, what to do with it. Then again, I don't know if it was, again, just how it was played or if it actually is just that, that one that they didn't really get the balance right on. But that's the risk you take when you start asyncing everything. Um, yeah from the player powers to the goals to the i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of it's the same thing with like scythe where you start mixing and matching things and then it's like oh that's much better than everything else Mm -hmm. um we might as well just stop playing right now because this game's over after round two kind of thing so um the one thing with like anachrony that i do like is i guess it's it's opaque enough to keep you going um even if you are feeling like, I mean, you, you always have a good or bad feeling about how you're doing, but at the same time, you still, it doesn't like force you into that. I'm out of this kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, I knew I was doing pretty well. I didn't know I was doing as well as I was doing, but you know, you just, you just keep chugging, you stick to your strategy and see how it plays out. So, you know, that's always good. Otherwise there's just too much, too much to track with the other players. So you just kind of keep on trucking yeah I, I don't feel like i can peg your enthusiasm for it right now or do you still like the game are you excited to keep it or are you are you starting to wane on it no i like it um i'd like to try the expansion modules before i make my final decision of if i'm going to get rid of it or not um yeah so but it's yeah it's a smooth game it's um like i said it they've 
they've learned a lesson from their last one, in my opinion, and they've really kind of honed gameplay and streamlined things a bit more, even with a lot of extraneous parts. They've kind of brought them into a, a neater, tighter package, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's it's good. Like I said, it's just... And I was telling someone on Twitter, I think it was I think it was Patrice who was asking about it. I said, look, once you once you peel away all the gloss, it's literally just a standard worker placement game. There's there's a couple of unique kind of twists here and there, but it's it's not that it's not that hard of a game to to pick up on once you get all the little kind of small rules that are easy to miss out of the way. It's it's a it's a pretty easy game. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, moving forward, a game that I've played a couple of times now with Kel, and I know that you and Kel got to play one stand, is Fugitive, which is the new Tim Fowers game. So this is a two-player, I mean, it's technically asymmetrical in the way that you play. One person is the marshal, and one person is the fugitive. The fugitive is trying to escape, and the marshal is trying to catch them. And that is completed through some card play and some guesswork. So what the fugitive does on their turn is draw a card from one of three decks, Those decks have different ranges and numbers, going from, I think, 1 to 14, 15 to 29, maybe, and then 30 to 41. You're trying to get that 42 card played to escape, and what you do is then draw a card and play a card from your hand face down as what they call a hideout. Now, that hideout has to be within three value of the previous previous hideout, so you can only go so far to play these cards. Uh, You can extend your range by discarding other cards Uh, to go a little bit further. Uh, So what you're doing is, as the mouse in the cat and the mouse situation, is you're trying to kind of bluff through this hidden information, you know, how far am I running away? What values do I have? Uh, And trying to ascend through these number values to get to 42 and escape. What the marshal is doing is a similar thing. They are drawing a card from one of those decks, so that gives them some information as to what cards the fugitive does not have, because there's only one of each card. And they get to guess a hideout. They can guess one hideout and just say, like, number eight. And if number eight is a hideout, you have to flip it over and show it. Or they can guess multiples, but it's an all-or-nothing situation. So they can say 8, 12, 15, but if one of those is not right, they don't show any of them. So very quick, very simple, filler game, two-player. Not a whole lot of meat in terms of depth of strategy, but it kind of does one thing really well, which is the hidden information bluffing kind of thing. Uh, It can at times feel, you know, Tiff was kind of describing how sometimes your hand just doesn't shake out. You know, you feel like in that trick-taking game, you just got dealt a bad hand and you start taking all the tricks. This game can have a similar feeling where if what you're drawing doesn't help you, it can really, you know, on either side of the board, it can really feel bad for for in the moment because sometimes... There's just like, you know, they're laying hideout after hideout after hideout and you're not guessing anything correctly or you're drawing the perfect arrangement of cards as the marshal to kind of perfectly guess and you're right on the heels of the fugitive the whole time. It's tough, but I found that that doesn't last too long. Even in the moment, you're starting to feel like, man, I cannot get away. But I've had moments where Kel was like on me every card and then I managed to break away through some clever moves or... I haven't found anything and all of a sudden I pick up the trail and uh, like I had one game where I use this, there's a extra rule where if you're doing really, really poorly as the marshal and you haven't found enough hideouts, you get one like last ditch effort. Uh, I think they call it the manhunt and you can basically shoot the moon and try to guess every hideout that the person has had 
And I managed to do that successfully, which was like shot in the dark, super lucky. You know, I had informed choices, but some of them I was like, okay, it's this one or this one. Let's make a guess. And I managed to catch Kel. So that's kind of a cool moment. And because it's only describing sounds exactly like what you would want out of this game. Like it sounds exciting. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing is, you know, 15 minute game, it does what it's supposed to do really well. So it's not overly fancy, but it just has it has just enough to it that it's engaging and it goes quick. And if you get caught or you catch, you just flip rolls real quick and you jump on in and and play it again. We've played it probably five or six times now. So it's it's a good time. I really like it. And uh, Tim Fowers does good work. All the cards have individual artwork on them. Comes with this really nice magnet class box. It's probably only going to run like 15, 20 bucks in the store. So I, you know, I think I paid somewhere around that on the Kickstarter. So I really like it. I'm glad that I have it. Um, it's a, it's another good addition to the two player filler line. You so, almost Dan, convinced me to back that one. Uh, well, now, now we can everything we talk about now. I can say we'll bring it to Origins because it's so close now, <laughs> Tiff. So I will have that in tow to Origins. But uh, let's see if Dan can shed some light and maybe influence you more. Dan, you got to play one time. What did you think? Um, it was cute for a filler game. I played as the Marshal, which, I don't know, I, I think of the two roles, it's probably the more boring one. It's like, draw a card, guess. Draw a card, guess. There's no, like, I was kind of, like, looking at Cal, and Cal's making all these, like, cool, like, bluffing decisions and stuff like that. And as the Marshal, there's no, that bluffing aspect wasn't, you know, reciprocal. And I, yeah. you know, I like that. It seems like whoever's playing the thief gets to actually like use their brain a little bit more. Um, but it is a filler game. It's fine. Um, but like you said, like you draw, if you don't get something that helps or it's a card that you've already passed on the lo- on the line of cards, like it's like, okay, that was a wasted turn. Uh, 20. Nope. Okay. Your turn. Like, and that, that really is not interesting at all. Um, when that happens, it is, I mean, like you said, it's cool. I mean, but you can say that about any game. It's cool when you take a shot in the dark and you're right. Like, that's like, yeah, that's cool. Um, but as the marshal, I think that happens a little bit more than I would like. Um, and like I said, I think there's just a little bit more of a game to the 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 thief or whatever it is, that side of the board where it's like you can lay, you have a decision. There's like, there's actual decisions to be made as far as how you can play your turn. Whereas the marshal was just literally draw a card, guess a number your your turn cal like that's that's all it was so like i said yeah it was like i love deduction games and i love bluffing games i just i wanted a little bit more on that side of the board um again haven't played the thief but just watching cal like i was kind of envious that she was actually getting to like use her brain um to play this game so yeah it's fine it's super uh super nice production the uh the card art is uh super quality just like burgle bros uh nice box nice little uh as the marshal you get a nice little like dry erase board which is cool so yeah for 15 bucks yeah why not i just like i said i think with it being a two-player game and one player i think is going to have much more fun than the the other player but that's just my you know that's my limited experience just a, a slight comment on that artwork it's cool because it goes from zero to 42 well for Hold on. First off, I agree with Dan. I think that Dan's got a fair assessment of his side of the board. You know, he only played it once, but I think that the, everything he said is is accurate. So that wasn't in an attempt to dismiss that. Uh, but the artwork does go from zero to 42 and it kind of tells the story of the chase. So the zero is the thief stealing whatever they steal. The 42 is the thief on an airplane escaping. And it tells this whole little story 
Uh, so it, it was just kind of another That's cool fun. little aspect. It's got some of the Burgle Bro characters in it. So like the ones that you played with are helping this fugitive get away. So like they're flying the airplane or they're driving the getaway car or something like that. So there's a lot of little Easter eggs. So as someone who I own all the Tim Fowers games, it's cool to see them kind of culminate and come together. It's just a nice little Easter egg. But no, I think that I think that Dan's assessment is fair. Uh, I just I have a lower threshold for two player and filler games. You know, it's not really Dan's style. I I can tend to deal with them a little bit better. So you know, I, I, tip, I, I don't like know where you two fall. player games. I just like literally like it was draw a card guess. Like I I just wanted to do something a little bit more. I think there's a ton of two player games out there where the the play experience is more even and it's more interesting. Um, like I said, I think this one's just it felt a little lopsided in the favor of the thief as far as the the interest level all right tiff so it'll be at origins you can try it it out yeah hopefully we'll have a minute to do that (laughs) all right so we've been chatting for a while i've got a couple more games on my list but i think we'll hold off on the the abstract obsession we'll get into that in a future episode and let's go ahead and take a quick break and transition into a discussion topic on there being way too many games in this hobby so join us for that Right, everyone thank you for joining us we are back and let's hop into a discussion topic now we talk all the time on the show but it's sometimes it's nice to have like a central focus and i spent a lot of time perusing bgg you know setting up show notes and and looking at stuff and just this idea popped into my head and also being a video gamer this is something that's talked about a lot about the saturation in the market about the the wealth of content and games out there and i think that I was kind of assessing, thinking about all the markets that we use for entertainment. And I think that this is a common issue all over the place. So video games, movies, books, there's a lot of stuff out there competing for our free time, competing for our money, uh, and also competing within the industry. So I had this idea, it's not a novel idea, but just applying it to games, you know, are there too many games? Is there too much content? to deal with. Um, And what I wanted to do today was kind of look at different aspects of the industry, uh, whether it be the producers, the consumers, the games themselves, or, you know, us as media creators, how does this wealth of content, material, games, how does that impact us in different ways? I'm not necessarily coming, well, I should say, my bias is coming at this from kind of a negative angle, but I don't want to only focus on the negative. There are, there are good aspects to this that we can get into, but I think overall, I come from at least the mentality that this is probably an issue more than it is a benefit. And I guess we can start there. Like, how do you two feel about this? And, and I'll use the, I'll throw a number out there. BGG just crossed 90,000 registered games on the website. So that's probably a, a you know, 90% of what's actually out there. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that it's a bad thing. I think games are being created because there's a market for them. And uh, there wouldn't be this volume of games being created if there weren't people buying them. So I, Yeah, I think that that's true. There are a lot of people out there with a lot of different tastes and, you know, their their needs are getting met this way. It makes it harder for us, I think. <laughs> 
to parse yeah. things out. Well, Dan, where do you where do you fall just instinctively before even weighing the options? Do you think that like the high level of game production is that, what? What are your opinions? Mm, I don't know. I mean, strictly from a from a financial standpoint, I think you have to keep the games churning to keep the industry moving. Um, you can't kind of just fall back and rest on your laurels. I think what's happening is it's kind of, I guess it's, I don't know. I need to think about this. I only just read the question. So that's when you're at you, your best. No, it's not actually. Cause then I start to get confused. I'm trying to think of an analogy and I can't right off the top of my head right now. Um, so like, I think it's twofold. I think you're starting to see this kind of this cash grab mentality where you see people trying to take advantage of the current kind of economic situation within the hobby. And then I think you have, you know, your standard publishers, which are churning out more and more games to be, to stay relevant because of their, their business models. And then you've got, I guess the consume, I don't know. See, I gotta, yeah, well, I'll develop this as we go. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the goal here. The goal is not to have an, an outright answer. We're going to discuss this that's why it is the discussion segment but i just didn't know where you fell so it sounds like you don't fall on either side right now you really do want to give this i mean a fair I, don't, I don't know that you have the numbers but like how do, how do board games compare to video games at this point in time i know it's a much more uh the the hobby is much more in its infancy than video games but i i don't know it seems to be working out okay on that side of the spectrum i think I think as you know, people get into these hobbies, and it goes back to last week. You were talking about Gil's article on gamer fatigue. As you get into these hobbies, you start going gung ho, buying everything you see in sight, and then as you develop your tastes, as you develop your um, your likes and dislikes, you know, you start to hone in on what you want to target, whether it be a designer, whether it be a publisher. And then I think you just start to sort of settle into those kind of niches um, as opposed to just looking broadly at everything that's coming out. I mean, what was it, like 1,200 games came out at Essen last year? I think I know of maybe like 75 of those. You know what I mean? Like, So it's like yep. I, I can only keep track of so much, but again, I'm only one person. And then there's other target audiences, as you mentioned. So I don't know. It's just kind of it's blossoming. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's fine. What were you going to say? Mm-hmm. I was going to say I, I think – as, as far as thinking about the kinds of gamers that the, the market has, I think they're becoming more and more informed, which might eventually make it harder to be a smaller publisher, if that makes sense. Because In what, in what sense, yeah. When you go to the game store, like knowing a certain publisher's components, quality, how they do their rule books, things like that is a huge advantage for them. Whereas I might not pick up something that looks interesting to me from an unknown publisher, because I already know, you know, I'm not willing to take the risk because I've already been burned so many times, like, Mm -hmm. and maybe it, it plays into Kickstarter too. Like you'll see cool mini or not doing gangbusters out there and maybe some of these smaller games that are really good games you know some of them are friends of Maine and are are barely getting the funding to to go through with it because people just aren't as willing as they become more and more informed about things not as willing to take a risk on a new publisher yeah, i'm not saying that that's happening games. now but well, you see that in the game stores, too, and it, it kind of comes back to whether or not this whole, hey, I'm Asmodee, I'm going to eat your company um, mentality is good or bad for the industry. 
because I know, I know, I mean, we have a great shop here in Maryland, probably the best in Maryland easily. And if you look at the titles, they stack all the FFG, all of the asthma, like everything is just, it. when you look at the shelves, you could probably, it's probably 80% asthma day. Now they're good about, they do back Kickstarters when they have retail levels and they do have some of the smaller show, um, things. But as you mentioned, it's just, it's going to get harder and harder to break through as these conglomerates start to form. And that's, that's any industry. I mean, they're going to try and monopolize as much as they can, um, within, you know, legal means and, and just kind of grow their business because after all, it is a business. Um, I think, I think we get lost a lot of times in the feel good nature of this hobby. And, and, and I always laugh because people always call me like jaded and like, I hate everything, but I'm just trying, I, I, I sometimes think that this hobby is going to be in for a rude awakening at some point when they do realize that these companies are going to be in this to make a buck soon. And it's not going to be all about the consumer. It's not going to be all this brotherly love and stuff like this, because this is becoming a viable billion dollar plus industry. And pretty soon you're going to get some sharks in it. And, you know, we're seeing that with Mexican and minions coming in, like, those are big boys. Like the, those guys could buy asthma day seven times. You know what I mean? Like we're going to get, you're going to get more and more and it's going to become more and more business-like and it's going to, it's going to have less of that kind of feel good indie vibe. I think going forward, um, I, I don't think I that's think in the foreseeable. There, well, potentially. I don't think it's, I don't think it's completely there. Um, well, but, and I think indie games are probably always going to be in niche. Like they are for video games. There are people that just seek that out. Yes, I know. Yeah, but that's not that you don't know that coming into the hobby. You know what I mean? You have to seek those out. Like I, I'm not big into video games, and I know Matt. Matt could probably speak to this better, but I know he knows. Oh, this is coming from X publisher, and I'm like, I've never heard of them because I kind of sit at the <laughs> yeah. top of the you know the board gaming spectrum and like the kind of the the vague casual. I play here and there. I play the big titles that I like. Um, but you know, Matt and my brother Mike, like they're they're in the weeds. They read about this stuff daily, and so they're informed. And it, again, it all comes full circle to the kind of the information and the maturity of the people within the hobby. Um, but I, I, mean, I don't I know that it's a- at the level that video games is. I don't think we're going to no. start. I don't think it's getting too cutthroat too, just yet. But it's it's going to have to be because that's the only way you're going to be able to survive as a company. I do think that if you take a look, though, we have seen, and this I think some sticker shock has happened of late where all of a sudden where you expected a game to fall in like a 50 60 range all of a sudden things are creeping up to like 75 dollars or you've got more hundred dollar games becoming the norm where you know i think that some of that is people are gonna start making they're gonna milk the margins they're gonna yeah exactly exactly i think that they're and to be fair i think that from what I know, you know, and I am not a board game publisher um, and I don't run a board game store. So, but it seems like board games in general have run on pretty th- slim margins for a while. I think that not a lot of people were making a lot of money in this world. Uh, but it seems like as people have wised up to the power of miniatures and production quality, that the extra expense to make a game look better has a lot, has. A lot of benefit in terms of being able to jack the price further than you expected. And I think that people are finally trying to, trying to, uh, starting to figure that out. And, you know, as an example, looking at Terraforming Mars, I was talking to uh, Paul at our GameStop, who's, GameStop is a video game store, sorry, at our game shop, who is very informed, very in the market. 
And I said, you know, why is this game $75? The car quality is low. The art is kind of poor. The board and the, the component quality is not all that fancy. And he looks and he says, these shiny cubes. Nobody is doing these shiny cubes. So there's your price increase. And that's because one, a production increase, but also because it's a unique component. It looks fancier. And, I, you know, I think that we're hitting the point where it's going to be aesthetics and it's going to be quality of components as opposed to the game design that's going to carry us forward in terms of pricing I was structure. just thinking about this the other day as I was perusing Kickstarter. And is it like now I've gotten to a point where if I see something that has like really cool components and really amazing production quality, I question its validity as a game. Like, yeah. I, I mean... New people coming in probably wouldn't do that. But, like, those of us that have been in the hobby for a while, like, I wonder if that's going to be a thing. Because I look at it and I'm like, what are you hiding with these components? That's how I look at games now. Yeah. Interesting. Perception. The value <laughs> of perception. The value of perception has increased tenfold since 1995 when Catan came out. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's built in now to the price. I think you're starting to kind of understand looking at a price point, what what value should be in there from a component standpoint. Gameplay is kind of, I think gameplay is just now, that takes a back seat to what's in that box physically. Because board games are such a physical product, unlike board games where you can make up your margins maybe, or uh, video games, sorry, where you can make up your margins in other ways possibly. Board games do have, they, they are a physical product and they they have to be made. Like there's they're, they're tangible, that's what they are. Um, so there's no getting around that. I mean, as the kind of the manufacturers and stuff probably get into more standardized parts and upgrades to the factories and things like that, maybe prices will will come back down. But I don't know. It's it's weird. You know, 70 bucks is now becoming the standard where 60 was the standard. So it's, it's like slightly creeping up. And um, it's it's kind of bothering me because, <laughs> you know, my salary is not going up that quickly. So, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. the uh, the disposable income, and it's starting to. I think it's. I think it's starting to put a squeeze on some people. I mean, you'll always have your people who want those hundred dollar big box mini games like Rising Sun and stuff like that. Um, and maybe that's why we talked about it before. Like Rising Sun did so well, and any cool mini project does so well is because you've got your level set at what a hundred dollar game comes and that's the base game. And then they're throwing in what you perceive to be almost another hundred dollars worth of game parts on top of it for free. So it's like, sure, I'll take that. doesn't make the game any better. It doesn't change the game in any way whatsoever. It's just, here's some free stuff. It seems like you're getting better value Yeah. and that perception that they've honed in on whether or not you, I mean, yeah, I don't know what their, their cost, what the ratio is there in terms of, um, expense versus profit, but it seems they've definitely honed in. Cool Mini, in particular, has honed in on perception of value, and that is why their Kickstarters do so well. Is because they make it look, whether or not you are, like you're getting a whole bunch of stuff for your money. But maybe that's only fifty dollars worth of components. Who knows? I don't. I don't know what they're molding and sculpting, and uh, their print run. How that all factors into their overall costs. Yeah. But another thing I think if we're going to keep the kind of I mean, I think it's only natural to compare video games and board games because they're leisure activities that consume a lot of our spare dollars. Yeah. Um, and they're they're just sheer entertainment. I mean, you could look at movies, too, because movies have gone up. ridiculous. I mean, I paid, what, 60 bucks to go to the movies a couple of months ago. 
was ridiculous. I was like, get out of here. I could have bought. A, crazy. I could have bought almost a board game. Seventy. Almost a board game. Seventy dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you compare it, like I think, I think board games. I think I don't know, and I, I'd love to see the data on this as far as kind of like the the escalation from like ground zero to where we are today versus something like video games or something because what video games have that board games don't is a little bit more of a barrier to entry, especially from a skill set standpoint. I mean, if you think about it, anyone can, you know, make some, some cardboard and some paper and put together a prototype and test it and stuff like that. But to make a video game, you need a skill set in, you know, it, you need, you know, you need some programming, you need a couple more things. And that's not to say that, you know, board game designers don't have, specific skill sets or specialties or you know any less talented it's just i think the barrier to entry for board games is so much lower um than a lot of other hobbies um just because of the sheer fact that it is so accessible um from a from a creation standpoint um i think that's something else you could probably contribute that contributes to the 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 i don't know the dramatic rise in the amount of games we're seeing um it's like, I yeah. think, I think anyone, and I, I said, you know, anyone can design a board game. Anyone could probably could design a, a, a video game as well, but it's going to probably take you a little bit longer to acquire the skill set. Um, and, and again, that's not well, saying that these games are good or bad. Yeah. If you want to design a video game and you're starting from square one, whoever already knows how to design them is going to beat you. Like it's a very specific thing. I know this because my husband does a little bit of game mm. design sure. in a video yeah. game. And it's impossible for like a one-man band to design a full video game with the speed and the look that a larger uh, design studio can. And, and that's not as true for board games. A, a one guy can design and if if he has graphic design mm-hmm. abilities and, and, and game design abilities, can do a full board game by himself. Uh, it's not fun, but it can yeah. happen. And you can turn easily. around quicker. Like, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, your husband. He has his stuff together. Your, your husband, for instance, maybe couldn't compete with Bethesda. But <laughs> you or I, if we have a good idea, we could compete with Antoine Bauza. You know what I mean? Like, we could, you know, possibly put out a game that, you know. It's true. You know what I mean? And, it, and again, perception. I mean, I think just the, the ability to be able to make a game and make a dollar in this industry is just, I think it's a little bit lower barrier of entry. Um, and, and again, it could, it just, it's, it's the, uh, what's the effect the, uh, placebo effect, maybe, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah, just, that's, that's interesting. Cause you know, I was thinking about, uh, like TV versus YouTube, like cable versus YouTube in that mm-hmm. sense this is a totally different unrelated thing, but, uh, people are watching more YouTube nowadays than cable. Yeah, and, on their YouTube shows and series. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm like in my mind, I was thinking, I wonder how long it is before like cable just isn't really a thing, or it's just for old people, or you know, <laughs> sorry, old people, uh, our elderly listeners out there, but uh, you know what I mean. Like maybe it's the other way around. Maybe these little games will overtake some of these giants. Is that possible? I don't know. Well, and maybe this speaks to Dan's previous comment about the games the board game industry trending towards you know big dogs money makers things like that uh in that much like youtube board gaming is almost in terms of the gaming hobby in general is the amateur space 
almost. Uh, it is no longer... This is not This is a blanket statement that is not fair to generalize. It's very, very difficult for an amateur designer to make it in the video game space. Now, there's definitely people doing it. Um, you know, I play Stardew Valley all the time, and that's like a one-man band. That guy struck gold with that game. But it, the board game world is almost more of an amateur space where... Uh, it's, it's smaller. It's, it's a smaller market. You're doing smaller print runs. You're trying to reach smaller people that, and there's less, there's less manpower required or woman power required to get a board game off the ground. And maybe that contribute part of that, um, is the automation of creating a board game. So when you create a video game outside of procedural generation, which you still have to write the code for you, there is a person making assets and drawing things and developing and writing code and programming. Whereas for a board game, once you have the design, once you've play tested the design, once you've gotten your sculpts for your minis and things like that, a factory makes it. And a person is running that factory, but a machine is making that game and packaging it and putting it together. So whereas a video game is manpower from start to finish. Um, so that, that kind of factors in and you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours and a 20 person team or more than that and, and millions of dollars versus even mechs versus minions which was a huge production probably didn't take that many people or that much time so it maybe the board game space as it currently sits is just more of a grassroots amateur world which is why but are the expectations getting higher? Will it get to a point where, you know, like we've seen with indie publishers, they put something out and there's a tile wrong. And that's because yeah. there's like three people working on it. And, mm -hmm. and and those mistakes, are those becoming more and more unacceptable? Will it come to a point where you have to have, you know, an army of playtesters and a whole back-checking process in order yeah. for your game to be successful? Because those those kinds of mistakes will kill you. Yeah. Well, and do you th then then that's you, when Asmodee becomes the EA of the board gaming <laughs> yeah. space. Like everyone loved EA games when they first came out. And now it's like EA puts out something and it's like, "Rah, this game is crap." Rah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess the question to piggyback off of that Dan, the the EA question. So, you know, EA gets crap at least from me because they put out very similar games. You know, yeah. think about like video again, video games are just such a natural comparison. Think about the Call of Duties of the world where Every year you get the same game, different theme. And I asked this question about CMON with Eric Lang. Uh, you know, at what point does the market get so big and people become brand loyal and people become game style loyal where all of a sudden we're just playing this year's Rising Sun, which is looks a lot like last year's Rising Sun, but now it's in space. Uh, you know, does the, the rise in board game production mean that the quality overall or the innovation, the invention, you know, the true uniqueness of games starts to tail off and all of a sudden we're just printing derivations of old games and, and we're reprinting old games and we're just putting new coats of paint on things. Well, that's as easier, we, right? We run out of ideas. Right. It's right? easier for consumers to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think rule books really are a, a thing that holds us... It takes a lot of work to thoroughly research a game. And the reading a rule book is, I mean, some people are super into it and curl up on the couch in front of the fireplace with a rule book and love it. Dan. Dan. Yep. But it's pain for some, for most people, I would say. And I see it in my board game club all the time. It could be a one-page rule book and my kids are like, can you teach this? No. <laughs> 
read. But I, I mean, you have to read through a rule book to really know gameplay. But if if we're just churning out different themes of, on the same uh, game system every year, that it makes it easier, and it also makes it easier to choose based on aesthetics. Rule books, if they were easier to get through, if there is an, and I mean, that's I think why there's so much um, why video board game media is so huge. People love that because it's not as hard of a job as reading a rule book. Yeah. And does it... Sorry, that might take us away from what you were getting at, but... Well, no, I'm I'm going to see if I can pull it back in because I think that this is just kind of a scattered... I like the (laughs) thoughts that are coming out of this, but, you know, keeping on non-tangential conversation is not our strong suit. Um, (laughs) But just thinking about, uh, you know, thinking about that barrier to entry where... If you buy a movie ticket, you go and you sit down and they give you the movie. If you buy a video game, you sit down and they'll it'll walk you through the game. You get to do it and practice it. And some board games have started doing that, like I think Crossmaster and things like that, where you've got like your little rule book where it teaches you how to play the game while you're playing it, which is a more interactive uh, experience, which, you know, psychologically research has shown that that will help things stick better as opposed to just reading it. Um, but there is that crazy barrier barrier to entry And one of the ways that, you know, again, the video game market has overcome that where games of similar style control similarly, where I can boot up pretty much any first person shooter of the modern day. And I know the buttons already because I can, you know, I I know what duck and what shoot is going to be. Do board games reach that? Do we start to does the rise in board games and board game production create a standardization process where all of a sudden like games start to play similarly? And does that hurt the creative process? I mean, I think that Again, grassroots nature of board games means we spend our time fighting against doing things the same way. But as we grow as a hobby, do we lose the ability, much like you said, where smaller publishers lose the ability to stake their claim? Do we as a hobby then lose our ability to really come up with creative, innovative ideas? And then every now and then we get that breakthrough game that makes it to the top. But in general, we're always sifting through kind of the same kind of stuff. This is, this is my worry, I guess. I think there will, there will always be uh, your TC petties out there fighting the good fight and making unique designs. And there will always be people who seek those games out. But it may just become harder to get there. Like, you may have yeah. to do more work to get those games. And, and, you know, it might be harder to get those games published. I don't know. Yeah. And then, you know, so, uh, on a different note that I have in the notes... How does this impact the consumer's ability to sort and sift and make valuable choices and tying that into media? How do we as media create content that's valuable to a consumer? Do we do we actually get a boon? Because if we're willing to sort through it for people, we'll get more hits and listens because people don't want to sort through it themselves or they can't sort through the, it themselves. So we put in the time and effort to do it for them. Does that help us or does that hurt the consuming process where we can't review and buy these games and see that see enough to really give a good a good play or well, we no, can't give play a good review every game but all the i mean we've seen such a huge increase i i think maybe not statistically but it seems like everybody and their brother has a podcast about board games these days and yeah. people listen to a lot of them uh and, and i think that is just because they want things parsed out and i think it's a boon to gaming podcasts that maybe aren't doing the the BGG top 10 type games, like parsing through some of the other stuff. Does that make sense? Because yeah, there's like just that, that. so much. And, it, you know, 
mainstream wise, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at the hotness, but there are other games out there that people probably want to know about. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just I'm now, improvising and it's never good when I do that. No, you're fine. I have a whole new idea of discussion where I'm thinking about is this hobby too hard to get into? Because think about all the the content we have to just try to make this this hobby easier. <laughs> to teach it and to sort through it and to figure it all out. You know, it, it it's a tough hobby to maintain because it requires and I think that it's a valuable thing. It draws a certain kind of person because it requires effort to engage in this hobby. You know, so nobody's much effort. You can't coast through board gaming. You know, the games are hard to play. You know, they're engaging. You got to read them. You got to learn them. You got to sort through what's good and what's bad. Um, and it, it's it's a is, diversion type of a hobby, but it's not like a re- it's relaxing in a way, but it's not like sit on the couch and I don't know and watch a movie or, dis- or destroy yeah. some people. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like a video game yeah. where I'm just hitting some buttons and I don't really have to think super hard about it. And I'm not saying all video games are like that, but there are definitely yeah, I will defend video go, games. Uh, go on and not have to really like this is I'm reading a rule book and I'm calling three friends and I am organizing their schedule so we can all meet. And then I'm I'm planning a teach and then we're sorting components and there are just a lot more steps. And all of that even for a beer and pretzels game. Yeah. You know, yeah. even, so even your most casual experience, take a little bit of time, a little bit of organization. Yeah. So, but it's, I mean, the hobby's doing well, so there, there's a need for that, I guess. What do you think, yeah. man? I got lost on this question. What, like, I, 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 I think forget. we all got lost on it. I'm not sure where we're, we're at, in the but, weeds, but it's okay. I don't know what we're talking about. Talking about media. Yeah. You can't keep up. That's, that's the end of the story. I mean, they'll try. <laughs> They'll try, and more power to the dice tower. I guess that's why they collect like four hundred grand a year from people. But um, it's too hard. Like I don't have time to keep up with this. And ninety-five percent of board game media right now is, again, it's its own hobby. So if you're trying to keep up with a hobby, using a hobby, it's just at some point, <laughs> at some point, you know, reality strikes, and you're like, I can't. I don't know. I can't keep doing this. So it's it's tough, and I, I don't know. I've felt that way. Like I, Definitely. I wanted to I wanted to be prepared for this podcast this morning, but you know, reality was my son wanted to play, and I had to eat breakfast at some point, and I'd do a couple of things, and here I am. But you know, things just didn't work out. And the same goes for like board games. Like I have every intention to play the review games that were sent, you know, timely and you know within reason, and. You know, sometimes it just doesn't paint out that way. I don't have a chance to sit down and play them. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's tough. Unless this is like your full-time gig and then then it needs to be a job and it needs to be professional and you need to take it as a job and a profession. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think that's where board games are still a little bit amateurish. Uh, we could get into a whole board game media conversation, but that's another talk yeah i mean i mean we might need to because i think we see a rise in people trying to get funding for doing what they do in terms of media just to survive you know they, they need to quit other responsibilities yeah. to dedicate to covering this hobby yeah well i think we've and all also experienced that a lot like i mean yeah. this year i i took like a huge hiatus from gaming i mean i still love games but real life creeps in and i don't have a giant kickstarter to to allow me to quit teaching so you know it is do you remember that listeners do you remember when tiff didn't play games 
I'm out of it. I remember when Tiff didn't play games. We'll see. (laughs) All right. Well, so that was that was a whole thing. I think there were a lot of ideas out there. You know, I'll listen to it and edit. And (laughs) when everyone else listens to this, maybe we can kind of find our next tangent because I think this is I like the ideas that came out of this, but I we need to put a a plug on it, I think, and uh, let the ideas ferment for a little while. So we'll let that go. Because we're going to end the show with some fun, and then I assume somewhere in it, it'll get terrible and we'll all be sad, because that's how we usually end the show, right? So <laughs> It'll be fun for you. I don't think it's going to be fun for me. We'll come full circle. So let's let's transition into something that I worked on this morning. Uh, one of our lovely listeners, Chris Schreiber, had posted during our holiday discussion about, you know, like, I think I said, or somebody asked, do game sales increase over the holidays? And he linked me to a BGG list that uh, this individual does. Let me pull up that name so I have it. It's uh, Peter Brahan. I think that's how you pronounce that. Which basically, he and I believe someone else has taken over it. We're tracking month to month the 100 most purchased games uh, within each month. Now, the way that the statistics are done isn't... It's the best you can do with kind of the BGG info. And I think it's it's fairly legitimate, but it's not overly accurate basically it's tracked based on how many people are adding games to their owned list so if i contribute a game i am considered to have purchased it in that month so it's not quite purchased because maybe i decided to add my whole collection this month and that's going to inflate the numbers a little bit but i think the law of averages things pan out i think we'll be we'll be okay so i've developed some lovely trivia based on this uh, specifically from the March 2017 numbers, since we just ex- exited that month. And I thought I'd I'd ask you guys some questions, and just for fun, we gamify everything. Let's see if Tiff or Dan can do better in this. Now, Tiff thinks that she is going to get crushed. I don't pay attention to Board Game Geek anymore. I have no idea what people... I haven't even stepped foot in my game store for probably a month, so I have no idea what's going on these days. Well... And I hate guessing. I have, <laughs> I have answers for these, but I can give multiple choice if we need to. Okay. Okay. I like multiple so, choice. Just, just answer, answer scythe to everything. You'll be fine. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So we'll start. I'll give a bonus point if you can guess the answer without multiple choice, though. So let's start. We've got nine quick questions, and then we'll round out the show. So the first one is. Hey everybody, this is Matt from the editing booth. In case you didn't hear via our anchor announcement, we had some technical difficulty with Dan during the trivia segment. Specifically, he lost his internet connection and was not able to get it back in a timely manner. So the trivia ended up kind of washing out. We actually ended up answering the questions with Tiff and it just doesn't really work as a segment overall so maybe we'll rehash that and do it another time but uh for this one we're gonna go ahead and scrap the trivia we've got a nice you know hour-long show for you anyway we will cut to the wrap-up that we recorded which does not involve dan so it does have uh tiff and i doing the closing so we'll jump to that now and just round out the show here again thank you all for joining us and sticking with us we're sorry for the technical difficulties unfortunately 
control over the internet is not in my superpower repertoire, but I will continue to work on that. Uh, also, in case you didn't know, as I mentioned, we do have an anchor radio station, something that I did not mention in our closing. Uh, head on over to iTunes or the Android store, download the Anchor app, and look for P-O-N-G Pong Radio, where I'm doing daily uh, or every other day small snippets up to five minutes of board game content, throwing some music up there, some funny little things uh, recorded from my car the other day, uh, all kinds of weird stuff that doesn't really work as a full show or a topic on here, but uh, we're able to do it in a lot more bite-sized, compartmentalized, off-the-cuff manner. So head on over there to the Anchor app, A-N-C-H-O-R, to check out Pong Radio uh, and get some content in between your content. Thank you all again, and enjoy the closing of the show. Exploding kittens, but Dan is gone. Dan is gone. He does not want to hang out with us. Okay. <laughs> we can cut this segment. <laughs> I mean, we can just finish it out with just me anyway, because me and Dan are like basically All right, twins. All right Tiff. What do you think the most purchased game in March was? Oh, <laughs> give me multiple choice. I'm way better. Nope, no multiple choice. I don't know. Terraforming Mars? You're right. And the last two questions have nothing to do with this year, so it's okay. Because what was the most purchased game in March of 2016? Oh, poop. What was hot last year? You know, our industry moved so fast that, like, last year seems like 12 years ago. I have no idea what was hot last year. I really don't. Um... Was Scythe it's exactly last what year? you think it is. Mm, not in the in the early yeah. spring. Okay. That delivered what? later in the year. What was last year? I don't know what was last year. It's terrible. It was, it was part of the party game duo. Oh. Um Code Names. Was it Code, code names? names was the most purchased game in March 2016. Now here's a, a switch. What was the most purchased game in March 2015, Tiff? Really stretch your, your memory and your knowledge. Two years ago is like, basically I was a baby then, and I have no idea. What game did you buy for your second birthday, Tiff? (laughs) Um, Assuming you were born in March, which you weren't. I was not. I was born in, I don't know. Okay, so that was when, okay, I'm trying to think back what I did in 2015. I think that was the year. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was the year that I went to. You were wearing parachute pants <laughs> i was probably wearing jinkos right like it wasn't that yeah. long ago um was orleans like that oh, back that's then? Is that, not a bad is guess it but it's wrong oh crap it's smaller game card game oh hot card game in 2015 well, then i'm not gonna know that one mr carl chuddick oh motainai or Mo- no, no and his red seven. Oh no i never would have yeah. guessed that yeah so, well, that was my trivia. Unfortunately, we lost Dan. like an idiot segment. Enjoy, everybody. Well, people love that, though. They, well, that's that's why I keep doing <laughs> Give it. Give the people what they It want. was requested. <laughs> it's like, hey, can you find new ways to make Tiff look like an idiot? Also, keep trade burn will be fine. <laughs> Either one. Those are the two things we get. We need to get uh, back. So let's that. go ahead and wrap out the show. We did lose Dan. He lost internet, but that's okay, because we were pretty close to being done, and he would have gotten those wrong anyway. So... Ooh, it's I fine. can say toodles at the end. Oh, cool. It's a big day for you, Tiff. 
<laughs> Good thing you sabotaged his internet. Yep. So that you can do his closing. So thank you all for joining us for episode 65 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. Be sure to check us out on Facebook.com slash League of Nonsensical Gamers. Shoot us an email, podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Head on over to BGG Guild number 2077. You know you want this micro badge. So ask for it and we will give you some geek gold. Check us out on Instagram. I am at Cinnamon Buns and Dan runs, well, Dan and Steve run the Nonsensical Gamers account. You can also review us on iTunes. You got some really kind words and a whole bunch of stars over there. So feel free to head over there and give us the stars you think we deserve and give some feedback. Also, thank you to our lovely sponsor, Tasty Minstrel Games. They've got lots of stuff coming to your shelves. They've got lots of stuff coming to your shelves soon, so check them out and check them out on playtmg.com. If you want to find us, Twitter is the best place to do that. Miss Tiffany B, if they want to find you, where do they do that? I am at ineptgamer. And Tiff, since you're being Dan anyway, where do you find us? Where do you find Dan? <laughs> Uh, and the league. He's at League Nonsense or at Scandalous underscore Nat if you want to get a little personal. No one wants to get personal with Dan. Don't I, do that. I think more people want to get personal with Dan than you might realize. That's probably true. Ooh. Want to cozy up to him. Yeah. Try to get a smile out of him. <laughs> it's impossible. Is he like that? that <laughs> he's just like, you just want to help him. People just want what they can't have, you know? Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. Can't have Dan. <laughs> No one can. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you want to find me, you, you can do so at Cinnamon Buns, spelled phonetically. Stupidly. Thank you, Tiff. It hurts even more coming from you. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. Be sure to tune in next time for a news episode. Tiff, say your goodbyes. Toodles and goodbye. See you, everyone. Take care. Stop. Stop. <laughs>